Hey, everybody. This is Stephen Devine. Uh, we are getting ready to air the show of Bob Cheely, fantastic trial lawyer from Alpharetta, Georgia. We just wanted to let you know that there's a couple of technical difficulties early on, and uh, but we want you to stick with the episode because we got that fixed and, uh, and the episode uh, plays well. It's just the first uh, few minutes, and we apologize for that, but we got it pick, fixed as uh, quickly as we could. Uh, is that yeah. right, so don't don't give up on us. Don't quit <laughs> yes. us. We love right. you. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The jury was nodding with us, and and you know they, I think that they realized that the defense was was trying to you know really minimize uh, how life was going to be for her down the road. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing? It's been a while since we've talked. It's been a while since we've talked, since we've seen each other. You've been in trial for a, a very long time. So yes. the question is, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I've, I've actually, we in the past six months, have had three trials. Uh, one uh, settled, you know, very favorably mid-trial. One had a really nice verdict and then one had a not so great verdict. And I spent a long time uh, away from home, almost a month to go get a a not so great verdict. So, but you know, that's, a, that's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, down in Miami and then they're just ruining your fun down there. That's just not yeah. fair. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, I don't even like to say the name of the place or, or that state. I just, you know, it's that state that's south of us. Sorry to all of our, <laughs> sorry to all of our uh, listeners who live, who live south of us, but it's not my favorite state right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Well, um, so we were talking right before we started recording. I think the, there's something you want to talk to Raz about. Yeah. Yeah, so I noticed, uh, so Raz, our producer, I think everybody knows Raz is in his first year of law school at uh, at Elon and uh, has been doing great. Uh, but I had noticed, Raz, that you uh, gave your first uh, oral argument, right? So uh, so tell uh, tell our listeners how you, how you did, how it went. Uh, I did good. It went really good. <laughs> nice. I, it's the case, hypothetical, hypo we've been working on for a while. It was uh, immigration and uh, criminal, 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 Immigration. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. yeah. So it was really complicated. Something I've never even thought about, but uh, I I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to try for moot court and mock trial. Nice. Oh, nice. awesome. That's, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm Thank sure you were great, Raz. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. And the picture you saw on Facebook, uh, my friends have been roasting me about it for quite a while. Now, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. What was wrong with the picture? No, good. they're just picking on me for being short. Yeah. They said, oh. you know, we, haven't, we haven't seen you in a while. We didn't know you got taller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but thanks for asking. And th and thank you. Of course, of course. Uh, well, well, uh, uh, We'll put up Raz's Facebook page. Uh, maybe we'll, yeah. we'll get that picture on the, our uh, <laughs> podcast Instagram or something. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, um, let's go ahead and introduce our guest uh, to everybody. They've been waiting long enough. Um, joining us on the podcast today is Bob Cheely. He is the founding member and managing partner of Cheely Law Group, LLC, um, down in Alpharetta or up in Alpharetta. Down, down in, yeah. Down in, up in <laughs> right. Alpharetta, depending on where you are. Right. Um, and, and you can look him up at chelylawgroup.com. That's C-H-E-E-L-E-Y lawgroup.com. Bob, thank you for uh, taking your time on a Friday afternoon to be on the show with us today. Well, thank you, Yvonne and Steve and Raz. Yeah. For <laughs> uh, well, we, we're glad to have you. Exactly. Um, so... For anybody who doesn't know Bob, and I think a lot of our listeners do, but for, for anybody who doesn't, I just want to tell um, y'all a little bit about him. He grew up in Buford, Georgia, um, driving tractors and working on the family farm. And uh, later he was working in his father's law office. His father was a lawyer um, on, in, on the summer in between college and law school. And he really got bit by the bug and felt the felt that he was meant to do the uh, the good work that a lot of our listeners do and be a trial lawyer and and help people who've been wronged and needed help. So um, that's what he did. He's a double dog. And, and we've had some other double dogs on the show. But for 
anybody outside of Georgia, that's somebody who goes to University of Georgia for undergrad and law school. Um, and ever since, Bob has been working on catastrophic injury cases, complex business disputes, representing people who've been injured. He's secured over $600 million in verdicts and settlements over the course of his career on, on behalf of his clients. Um, he's been a part of uh, and I think a lot of our listeners know him from really landmark cases in, in automobile safety um, and landmark cases like the one we're going to talk about today. And he is always really great about giving back and sharing his knowledge with the with the rest of us. And that is what he's here to do with us today. So, um, Bob, thank you again for being on. Um, and I, I, I'm sorry, did, were you going to say something? Or, oh, you know. well, it's an honor for me. Oh, oh well, it is thank an you. honor for us. Well, we, we should say, and I know Yvonne mentioned this, but, uh, but Bob, especially in the state of Georgia, it was, you know, one of the, the trailblazers, one of the groundbreakers when it comes to uh, automotive safety, automotive product liability cases, and has uh, just been uh, involved in some tremendous verdicts uh, and, and great work. Absolutely. And and I, I can't wait to talk about this case that that we're going to talk about today. As we mentioned a little bit before we started recording, this is a case based on events that are very well known in Georgia. Um, and in addition to that, uh, we'll get into it more. But what I loved reading about the transcripts and other things in this case is it's really there's so many lessons to learn from just this one case that you might not expect in how Bob and his team handled the case. Um so before we talk about that any further, let me um, give you all just a brief overview about the case. Um, it's called Megan Richards versus Total Transportation of Mississippi LLC et al. It was a 2017 trial resulted in a $15 million verdict. And the case arose out of a, a, a tragic event, like I said, that is that is very well known in Georgia, that it, uh, was a wreck an automobile wreck back in 2015 on I-16 uh, outside of Savannah. And it involved seven nursing students from Georgia Southern uh, who were driving in two separate cars. And we're going to talk about that. Megan's case, our, our plaintiff here, was was the only case to go to trial. And if you ever have occasion to drive to Savannah, which I do many times, you will see um, a sign for the Georgia Southern uh Nursing Angels Memorial Bridge, and that is about um, this case and the and the lives that were lost. Um, so specifically, the wreck was on April twenty second, two thousand fifteen, right around five fifty in the morning. Seven nursing students were traveling in two vehicles on I sixteen. There was a Ford Escape that was that was traveling first, and in that vehicle there was Megan, our, our plaintiff. We're here to talk about today. Abby Deloche, who was driving, Morgan Bass, and Brittany McDaniel, and then followed, they had all met up, so they were sort of caravanning together. Behind them in a Toyota Corolla was Emily Clark, Catherine Pittman, and Caitlin uh, Baggett. And they were driving in the right-hand lane uh, on I-16, which is a two-lane uh, highway, and they were uh, they saw a, a tanker truck stopped behind them uh, in ahead of them and the traffic had slowed down. They could kind of see it ahead of them. So they slowed and were basically stopped behind this tanker truck. What they didn't know at the time, but what came out later was that um, way up ahead or, or some of the distance up ahead, um, there had been a truck that was uh, owned by defendant Gray Wolf Logistics and its driver, Mr. Taylor. Um, he had struck a motorhome, a Winnebago. And so there was a wreck up ahead of them that was causing the traffic slowdown. And so the girls stopped there in the right hand lane. Meanwhile, coming up behind them is a, a man named John Wayne Johnson, um, who was driving a tractor trailer owned by U.S. Express Leasing and Total Transportation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the different defendants that were involved. Mr. Johnson was driving from Mississippi to Savannah and had basically been driving 12 hours. He had been driving overnight, essentially, had not had a lot of sleep for the preceding few days. And we'll talk about how Bob and his team uh, sort of discovered that and and put together a lot of these pieces. So he approaches the stop traffic and he never even touches the brake. He's going 68 miles per hour and he just absolutely plows into the girls' cars in front of him. He hits the Corolla first. Um, and as I, th I think Bob or his co-counsel described, basically 
crushes it like a Coke can and kills all three, uh, Emily, Catherine and Caitlin, who were inside. And then he hits the rear of the Ford Escape, which goes into the tanker trunk, the tanker truck that was in front of it and then ends up overturning twice uh, off to the right shoulder. Megan and Brittany, Megan is, is our plaintiff and Brittany survived uh, largely due to um, the evasive actions that the driver, Abby, attempted to take um, to try to get out of the way once she sees this truck barreling towards her. But uh, Abby and Morgan were both killed. Megan, um, whose case was the only one to go to tri trial, as you could imagine, um, witnessed horrific, unimaginable things. Um, she suffered PTSD as a result of what she went through. And she also suffered physical injuries, as you might expect, including uh, a shearing brain injury. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, fractured shoulder, fractures to her spine. And she was entrapped in the vehicle um, for a period of time as well. So that's contributing both to her injuries and to her uh, PTSD. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But the the driver who was at fault could not explain why he did not stop. He, he, he would admit that he didn't see the slowdown, but he could not explain why he did not stop. He said he was not sleeping, said he was not texting. Um, so we're going to dig into that um, and what Bob and his team were able to figure out. But in any event, as I mentioned, it was a $15 million verdict. 100% of the fault went to total transportation and related entities that we're going to talk about that Bob was able to establish really had a common interest in ownership over um, this truck and, and were therefore all liable. Um, so while some things in the case were conceded at trial, um, Mr. Johnson, for example, uh, the the driver of, of that the truck that struck the the nursing students' vehicles. Um, it was conceded that he was at fault. It was conceded that he was an employee of one of the entities, Total Transportation. But as I mentioned earlier, when you read the transcripts from this case, it really doesn't read like it's an admitted liability trial. Um, and I think part of that that we'll dig into it was this issue of these other entities that were involved and whether there was common interest in ownership and basically multiple defendants at fault or liable for Mr. Johnson's actions. There was also an attempt to apportion fault to, as I mentioned, the defendant Gray Wolf and the driver of that vehicle that had caused the wreck that had ultimately led to the traffic being stopped, um, sort of upstream in traffic. And then, of course, we'll also spend some time on the fact that these are injuries that are not easy to get people to understand, not easy to get folks to award damages to. And you you, you face a lot of defenses um, when you're talking about traumatic brain injuries, sharing injuries and, and PTSD, unfortunately. So there's a lot to dig into. Um, I'm sorry I've been talking so long and I'm going to stop. Um, but Bob, one of the one of the first. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to add one fact, just so our listeners, especially those who are outside the state of Georgia, understand, is that I sixteen, uh, which runs from Macon to Savannah, is essentially <clears throat> a very long, straight, flat road, uh, especially at the place where this uh, incident happened. So the fact that um, that Mr. Johnson claims he didn't know what happened. Uh, it is really questionable because it, one, it was before sunup. Um, and so the, you would see the lights of all the stop traffic and he had about, I think, uh, Bob, if I remember right in, in your opening about a mile, uh, you know, straight on view of, of that stop traffic uh, as he was heading towards it and just didn't take any evasive action whatsoever. Yeah, this was a really tragedy. Um, there was, uh, in that part of the state, it's known as the wreck. And um, everybody over there in eastern Georgia knows about it and remembers it. And and it really impacted the Georgia Southern community in the whole area over there in a, in a very you know hard way. Um, <clears throat> the loss of young lives and needlessly. Um, so Megan Richards was a wonderful young lady. Uh, she's. She was very lucky. She survived this horrible uh, and violent crash. And um, so I was uh, introduced to her through a mutual friend uh, who knew her mother and my sister. And that's how I came to represent her. Um, Megan went into the hospital 
Um, she didn't go in immediately after the wreck. Um, they took her to uh, my. Uh, they took her to the hospital in University Hospital in Savannah, uh, not by ambulance, but somebody drove her there, and uh, because they didn't really think that she had significant injuries, and they really did not. They should admit it. You know, it's under protocol. Anytime there's a death or multiple deaths, uh, they should hospitalize for overnight observation. Anyone who survived a, a terror but they did. They let her go back to Georgia Southern. And then this young man who she's now married to, uh, his mother was a doctor uh, in Augusta. So she had arrived in. Uh, Statesboro and saw her uh, Megan pass out. And so she immediately called an ambulance and took her to the hospital uh, in Augusta. Uh, so Megan uh, was one of the really lucky ones in this whole tragedy. And uh, while she did not seem to have physical severe injuries, <clears throat> one thing that we later learned uh, after having some uh, neuropsychological testing done, we realized uh, that she was had cognitive deficits. Um, she was a straight A student prior to this wreck, and and she didn't really have uh, a whole lot of struggles in nursing school, preparing you know for uh, her tests. And and uh, whereas after the wreck, she she really had a hard time uh, remembering information. Uh, she had to study about three times as much, um, and uh, so. I had her tested um, in Atlanta by one of the leading neuropsychologists uh, and uh, Dr. John Sass. And uh, so he did a complete workup on her. And uh, and then uh, the results came back that she did show uh, marked uh, decrease uh, functionality uh, associated with short-term recall. And I, I remember, you know, getting some pictures of her of uh, the day of the the collision that were made by uh, some of her friends or boyfriend. And she had a big black eye on her left eye and, and, a, and a, a big tone. And uh, the really interesting thing was this particular she was in the right rear seat of this Ford Escape. And that seatbelt in that uh, position of the vehicle did not work. It was it was jammed in the stowed position. And uh, so Megan got that morning when they all met about 5 a.m. in Statesboro to, to carpool. She uh, she tried to get there early enough to get the left rear seat so she could buckle up. But uh, unfortunately, or actually fortunately for her and unfortunately for um, Morgan Bass, who was in the left rear seat of the car. Morgan got that seat and Megan got the right rear seat. Even though she wasn't belted, uh, she survived this rollover uh, after being struck at 68 miles an hour by this 80,000 pound truck. It's a miracle. And it, the only reason that she survived was and the girl in front of her in the right front seat survived was because of the fast, you know, quick response of the driver of that vehicle uh, from Savannah, Georgia, Abby Deloach. And I represented Abby's father, Jimmy Deloach, uh, for Abby's death. And uh, another lawyer represented mother divorced from, from Jimmy Deloach. So um, we, uh, we have a like this something is going on with Meg's brain. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Sass confirmed uh, that there was something there, uh, had to be. You know, the left frontal lobe of the brain is where, you know, short-term memory and uh, executive functions and skills, organizational skills are, are stored. And we, uh, we suspected that, you know, with such a huge delta V change in velocity, uh, their vehicle was basically moving along at four or five miles per hour and gets hit by this big truck going 68. So it's about a 64 mile per hour Delta V.
So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So Dr. Uh, Scott Forcine in Augusta is a neuroradiologist and also has a master's degree in neuropsychology. And... Uh, he uh, he told me that what uh, needed to be done after reading the re- neuropsych report uh, evaluation that uh, what needed to we needed to do was to have a, a susceptibility weighted imaging done of the brain. Uh, short is known as SWI, and basically what that is is it picks up iron deposits from uh, dried blood uh, that are left behind from uh, ruptured blood vessels. And those iron deposits are called hemosiderins. And so uh, there's a scaling system based upon the number of hemosiderins that are observed in the brain uh, that classify it from mild, moderate to severe uh, uh, trauma to the brain. So basically, uh, we had her uh, referred to Dr. Forcine to have this test done. And... uh, the results came back that she did have a mild, mild, a mild traumatic brain injury based upon the number and, uh, and location of these hemosiderins in her left frontal uh, lobe of her brain. And how long was that after the, the wreck itself? We had that test done about a year to uh, 14 months, I think, after the wreck. Okay. And and I think, Bob, you, you mentioned, did she have some sort of scans done uh, within a couple of days of the uh, of the collision as well? They only did x-rays. Okay. Uh, obviously, x-rays will not pick pick up uh, those hemosiderin deposits. So, uh, I mean, for anybody who does brain injury, you know, there's a there's a number of different types of MRIs that people talk about. And and obviously, MRI evidence is is extremely important because then you can show objectively that there's injury to the brain. What the SWI that you're talking about, how does that compare to if if you know the diffuse tensor imaging or DTI that uh, is discussed a lot of times that, that is also done to to uh, show brain injuries? It's better. Uh, okay. Dr. Dean does both. And he says that SWI is irrefutable. There's uh, the defense will have no uh, comeback to it. Okay. And, and he was right. At trial, uh, the lawyers uh, defending the case were totally unable to land the glove on him. Okay. Well, and thank goodness you got her to to 
to the right person who was going to be aware of and be able to do that. Because I think a lot of times the, you know, the fear or the common thought out there is that if you don't have that treatment or those scans done right after that, you're not ever going to be able to sort of prove a before and after. Yeah. You know, it, uh, her mother, uh, Megan's mother and her boyfriend both told me that they could see a difference in her, uh, recall and her memory. And, uh, so we decided to, you know, have her seen by uh, this neuroradiologist, and uh, I'm glad we did. He's he's a superstar. Yeah, and it's it's so important. And we uh, didn't really talk about this, but I mean, you know, when you have a case like this, and I imagine that by the time you went to trial that Megan was looking relatively healthy and probably uh, uh, I, I saw some pictures of her. She's a beautiful young woman. So uh, it's, it's hard to get the jury to understand, you know, that even though she looks, you know, uh, good and, and, you know, even maybe, you know, in short bursts acts uh, fine that, uh, that she's suffering uh, this, this injury. So, um, you know, obviously the MRI is, is something that is, that is very important. What, what other ways did you go about in addition to the MRI and in, in showing to the jury just what had happened to her as far as a brain injury? Well, um, one of the things um, that we did was, uh, you know, brought in lay witnesses to talk about the, like her roommate in nursing school, who said that Megan, you know, was a uh, was very uh, <clears throat> outgoing before the wreck. Um, she, uh, as compared to after the wreck, she, she a lot of times her roommate uh, would wake up in the middle of the night and hear her Megan crying and screaming and. She'd go in there and she'd find her huddled up in her the, uh, the floor of her closet in her bat, uh, bedroom. And um, so uh, it, uh, you know, it was supported uh, that she had nightmares and she had depression. And uh, it, uh, Dr. Forcing uh, testified, too, that with this type of brain injury, um, it uh, predisposes uh, young person to development of Alzheimer's later in life, the studies show. And so we brought that out, you know, to the jury that uh, they need to take that into account in the compensatory damage award uh, to take care of her in the event that that were to happen in the future. Um, I did not bring Megan to trial, uh, even for board IR, uh, until I put her on the stand, I put her up last. I think she was number 18 witnesses out of 18. Um, and I put her on the stand last and she uh, she told me she she just could not sit there and listen to to uh, all the testimony about uh, uh, her friends being killed again and, mm -hmm. and relive that whole episode. And so, you know, she wasn't on the stand, but maybe 25 or 30 minutes. Um, when I put her up and it was some of the most gripping, you know, 20 minutes I'm in my whole 40 years of practicing law. Yeah. W one of the things I, uh, saw, uh, and I thought the way you handled this, and I think it's a, it's a great way to handle it, but the, this issue of the fact that she looks uh, great on the outside, but is hurting on the inside is you started your opening statement with a, um, with a written statement that she had made uh, where she really described, you know, like the uh, vehicle that she was in and, and basically how that for her was a metaphor for how she felt on the inside. And I thought that was just a really good way to bring it home to the jury. Yeah. Um, I told her to give some thought, you know, about two months before trial to how should, how, how could she best describe what, impact this had had on her life and that's what she came up with and i thought it was uh, very compelling it was so compelling and it was really you know in reading it the way that yes she wasn't there in the room but you basically started your opening statement with her words so it, it really still felt um you know it felt like you had kind of met her or had gotten some insight from her from from the beginning, I'm curious when she was actually on the stand, it, it looked like from the closing that they 
that they did ask her some that the defense asked her some questions yeah and you know like they often do now with social media they took selected photographs that she had on facebook of going on a you know trip to the beach with her family or her boyfriend and his family you know standing out on the beach smiling and they said you know doesn't look to me like you're uh suffering too much there right uh, and uh you know i came back and asked her questions tell the jury about what that drive to myrtle beach was like and she said well you know i told them that i would go with them but i can't stand to drive on the interstate beside those big trucks so we had to take the back roads the whole way so i think that that gutted any efforts on the part of the defense to minimize her injuries you you mentioned in closing uh, a Dr. Lacey. Was that her psychiatrist or or is a therapist? Yeah, Dr. Lacey is a psychologist. Okay, she saw Megan about thirty something times um, from the date of the wreck until trial, and she came. Um, she she shut. <laughs> she closed her practice for a day, and uh, I I told her rather than taking your video deposition and playing it to the jury. I want you there in a courtroom to look that jury in the eye. Yeah. And so Lacey took off a whole day and Dr. Sass did too. They both came and I put them up back to back and uh, that was uh, a money well spent. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I, now you mentioned in your opening that they were gonna put up no evidence, uh, no medical evidence on the other side to suggest you know, that she that her injuries weren't real. But then it sounds like during trial, they had a surprise witness uh, for you. You want to talk about that a little bit? The defense did. Yeah, they brought some guy, you know, like they, they decided they needed to have something to respond to Dr. Forcine. So they, you know, went out of state, I think, to Arizona or Colorado and found some guy, you know, and only gave him the records like two days before he testified. And, uh, you know, the judge. I, even though I objected that he was late named, uh, I let him, I didn't put up a huge fight because I didn't want him to have anything to deal. Right. Um, so this guy, you know, basically came in as a, oh, by the way, I've never seen the, the patient. I've never interviewed her, but these are my opinions about her. She's not all that badly injured. <laughs> right. Right. I and said, he, I think, I think they had paid him like $20,000 to come say that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very effective when you managed to, I think we all managed to hit a couple times that they could, you know, they couldn't find anybody in state and they had to fly somebody in the last minute that for all from all the way over here. And, you know, basically, what, yeah. did, what did the jury think about if they couldn't find anybody <laughs> local yeah, to say one, what he was saying? I think one of my questions to the guy on cross was, how many doctors do you suppose like you there are between Atlanta, Georgia and, and Colorado? Yeah. <laughs> That they could have found a lot closer to, to Georgia. We got we got we got good doctors like you too here in Georgia. Can they find one here? So it was fun. I like it, it. It it seemed like they also one of one of the ways that they were trying to establish that Megan was not that um, bad off in terms of her brain injury was to talk about her GPA after the accident. And I and I guess I'm wondering. You know, obviously, I didn't like that for lots of reasons, including that that your GPA does not uh, demonstrate everything that you go through when you suffer a, a a TBI. But I'm curious how sort of how that came across, how y'all dealt with that, if you could tell what the jury thought about it. Well, believe it or not, they left a guy on the jury from uh, Fort Stewart who uh, dealt daily in his job with people who suffer PTSD in the military. And from, you know, bomb blast and, you know, whatnot around the world. And uh, I couldn't believe they left him on the jury, but I'm glad they did. But, uh, you know, we we focused on Dr. Lacey's, our neuropsychologist uh, uh, testimony as well uh, to that person. And he was nodding with us the whole way. He said, you know, our experts were testifying that, you know, a lot of times, uh, like in Megan's case, she she had to work uh, three times as hard uh, in her studies to try to make the same grades. Right. And the, the thing that um, you don't know uh, is, is this uh, 
mild traumatic brain injury going to manifest itself in more severe ways into the future? Um, what's it going to be like for her, you know, to be caring for a, a child in neonatal intensive care, which was what she wanted to do, and that's what she's doing now? Uh, what's it going to be like when you are given orders, you know, verbally from a doctor in an emergency situation? Are you going to be able to retain all that information quickly and, and carry on his orders? Um, so, um, you know, the the jury was nodding with us and, and you know, they I think that they realized that the defense was was trying to you know, really minimize um, how life was going to be for her down the road. Go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say one one other thing I liked uh, that I think helped show the injury was that you um, had also brought a um, an accident reconstructionist, um, which I'm sure I'm sure they admitted liability sometime down the road. But uh, but the accident reconstructionist was basically able to you know show how much uh, force was on her and had been. And and uh, was in her, on her head, and I know at one point you said in the trial that it was that it was essentially like she had been dropped from a seven story building onto the ground was the the forces that she was going under uh, undergoing, and um, I thought I thought that that's just another way to help the jury understand you know how the impact that that can't be seen but that is really having on her on her brain. Yeah, that's right. Bryant Buckner is that expert out of Tallahassee. He's he's uh, one of the best I've ever seen. And uh, he and I worked together to try to come up with some illustrations uh, before trial. And and the, he basically said, you know, there were two impacts here. One was when the striking defendant tractor trailer hit the rear of their vehicles. Uh, and then the second milliseconds later impact was when the vehicle she was riding in slammed into the right rear corner of a tanker truck parked in right. front of them pretty much. And so there was, it was almost like the first impact from the 68 mile an hour tractor trailer uh, was like falling off a seven story building and then followed immediately as if you could pick that vehicle up and put it back on top of the building and it like falling off a six story building within milliseconds. So yeah, it, uh, they, the defense fought hard to keep his testimony out in, in entirely, but uh, we had to explain, you know, these forces that were involved that led to the deposits of hemocytorin in her brain from the shearing forces. So the judge made the right call and let it in. And that, well, and that fits well with when you talk about axonal shear and, and just so everybody understands it, when you have the, the gray matter and the white matter, the gray matter is heavier than the white matter. So, you know, when you get this movement, it actually shears off. Um, but, you know, every, every almost every expert you hear talk about axonal shear talks about the coup contra coup type injury where the brain is moving around inside of the skull and, and going back and forth. So that I mean, you had that actually happening. Uh, in real life, in, in 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 addition to what was happening in her, in uh, in her head, yeah, and you know, I now since that tr- case, anytime I have a high speed impact, uh, and sus- I even suspect you know a, a brain injury, I send my clients now to have a SWI done, and uh, you you'd be surprised at how many times there is evidence of a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Why do you think, Bob, or well, why do you, I'm sure you probably know, but for our listeners, why was this the only case that went to trial? Why did they decide to try this one? Because, because of the nature of the injury? Yeah, I think it was a business decision. Um, they had a $100 million policy. And by the time, the, I mean, they tried to pick off one of the five death cases early and tried to settle it for $2 million. Uh, the one for Abby Deloach driving the uh, vehicle um, that Megan was a passenger in. And uh, so they wanted to try to set the value of all those cases by dangling money quickly in front of one of the five uh, families who lost a daughter. And uh, I told uh, my counsel and uh, who was representing uh, Abby's mother you know, let's hold back. Let's uh, let's push this thing and get it ready for trial. I know they're going to pay uh, royally to keep this thing from going to trial. And 
my goal was to get the case set for trial within the first year uh, following the deaths of these young ladies. And fortunately, we, we were able to do Judge Paul Rose um, uh, set the case for trial on the anniversary week. Uh, so mm. that arguments would have been probably on the on the anniversary of the wreck. So that uh, really helped us. And uh, but they the, the insurance company was AIG and they had paid out uh, by the time we got to Megan's case, um, they had paid out, I think, 78 million to 80 million dollars in to settle the other cases, including the one for Abby Deloach. She, we we got 90 percent of our initial demand, which was a little over 17.2 million for her death case. And uh, she lived about two hours before mm. passing away. So, you know, we uh, they wanted to save as much of that remaining, you know, twenty two million dollars on the policy limits as possible. And in fact, they only offered nine hundred thousand dollars pretrial to settle uh, Megan's case. So uh, I told the judge, uh, Judge Rose, when he called us on the phone two weeks before trial, he said, "Where, gentlemen, where are we on settlement discussions? And I said, well, judge, we're f- pretty far apart. I'm at 10 million and the defense is at 900,000. And he said, my God, I've never had parties this far apart before and this close to trial. And I said, well, judge, if, if they're right, we go to trial and if they can keep this verdict under a million dollars, I'll, I will carry uh, the defense lawyer's satchel out of courtroom. <laughs> Right. Salute yeah. him outside on the lawn. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, we went to trial and the jury brought back 15 million. Yeah. Um, and I didn't I, I'm realizing now that you said that, that I didn't mention in the beginning uh, that the case was tried in the Superior Court of Bryan County um, here in Georgia. In Pembroke, Georgia. The, the locals yeah. plum broke. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's a nice little town, but, you know, they, uh, the jury brought back the right kind of justice. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them. They'll enlarge them. They'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial test technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So I, I, I wanted to ask you about jury selection and I guess, you know, specifically about I have to imagine that when you were picking the jury, everybody knew of the uh, collision. I mean, it, it, when when this happened, it was you know huge news, a huge tragedy, and you know as as we said at the beginning, uh, you know the loss of so many uh, of, of these students from Georgia Southern who were in the nursing program. W- what was uh, jury selection like? Well, I'll tell you, it was a pretty tight courtroom. Um, Steve, I'm sure you've been in that courtroom. It's in the old courthouse. And uh, literally, when you're on the witness stand, you can reach over and shake hands with a couple of people in the front row of the jury box. So, yeah, we brought in, I think, 78 or 80 prospective jurors. And there was not a single person who had not heard um, about the, the wreck. And so... Yeah. And, and I got to imagine it was there. I mean, there had to be at least uh, a lot of ca- uh, challenges for cause. I'm imagining, especially from the defense of people who uh, had said they had, you know, were leaning one way or the other. Was that the case? No, actually, people wanted to serve on this jury. OK, so they were all saying, you know, I have not made up my mind and I'll keep an open mind. And I mean, <laughs> right. we did not have anybody that, you know, we really needed to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I w- we'll go ahead, Steve. Well, well mine, I, I, mine changing topics. So yeah, yours ahead. was on topic. You go. No, mine was changing topics too. So let's, okay. uh, let's change your way. Well, we'll start with mine first because it might be quick. Um, I, I didn't mention when I when I was going through um, the verdict that the jury was given the option to uh, answer questions, basically whether they wanted to award punitive damages, um, whether they found that that Mr. Johnson actions amounted to willful misconduct, malice, fraud, wantonness, oppression, or entire one of care. Um, and they did say that they wanted to, but it looks like y'all didn't go further than that. And uh, to the extent that you can answer that question, Bob, I'm just wondering why that was, if it was because it was just against the driver or. Um, well, no, we had, uh, you know, we, we tried the case, we rested and then uh, AIG had their number one guy in charge of uh, catastrophic claims there watching the trial. And he came up uh, with the defense attorney, Dave Dial, and said, uh, Dave Dial told me this gentleman wanted to meet with me and talk about a high-low agreement. Okay. So um, that's what we did. We entered into a high-low agreement. And um, so, you know, the first phase of the jury's verdict resolved the, the case in gotcha. its entirety. And uh, it, uh, one other thing I will say that was unique about this trial too, is it was two cases tried within one. We had to try uh, the whole case of control by the parent company, U.S. Express, over its subsidiary from Mississippi, Total Transportation of Mississippi. And so we I had to put on evidence of you know, common enterprise and uh, essentially piercing the corporate veil um, to to link in the U.S. Express parent company out of Chattanooga, which was like the third largest trucking trucking company in the United States. Um, the defense fought hard to try to keep U.S. Express out, and because uh, they'd never been tagged, I think, with a big verdict and. Um, but uh, J.P. Gingras was my expert. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, we did a lot of financial discovery, common bank accounts, um, common hiring policies that applied and training policies for drivers. And, uh, you know, we had a, several things that um, gave us an opportunity to tell the jury about, you know, uh, how big of a company this was and the organizational chart that we 
you know, put together showing how all these parent uh, holding companies and subsidiaries fit together gave the jury the impression that, man, this is a huge operation. Right, right. So it really, you know, I'm, I'm glad they fought us because it gave us that platform. Yeah, the the jury was with you. They found that every one of the entities that you had listed were in a unit that that were unified in the interest in ownership. The jury agreed and made an individual finding for each of those entities. And I was I was really interested in that because from the from the perspective of, okay, what you know, what can be interesting about these cases, it might not be that. But in terms of what we do sort of when we get new cases and you're drafting a complaint or you're dealing with motions to dismiss or motions for summary judgment, a lot of times, you know, that's what we're dealing with is, you know, parent entities who are saying, no, it's not, they're completely different. It's not me. Um, and and all have fighting that fight. You're you're muted, Bob. Yeah. There you go. I, oh, okay. I, I was ordering another glass of wine. Oh, good, good. I just wanted to make sure it was on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. Not at all. Priorities. Um, But, you know, I I thought that was really interesting because a lot of times we have to have that fight in the briefing or or to the to with the judge, you, you know, trying to show the court why those folks should be in the case. But a lot of times we don't get to, you know, we don't win that fight or it's, it's, it can be a tough fight to win. So I think it's really interesting that you got to try that issue to the jury. Yeah. I, uh, you know, a lot of times you just have to have a really, uh, open-minded judge. That's all we as trial lawyers want is a judge mm-hmm. who will you know, give us the time of day so we can explain why something is important. And uh, Judge Paul Rose was our judge, and he was fantastic. And, uh, you know, he didn't rule in my favor on everything, Um, although he did rule um, on one really significant point just before trial. The defendants uh, tried to keep out any testimony uh, from Megan uh, or anybody from our side uh, about the... uh, what her having to see her friends die, you know, and smell their flesh burning in the car behind her and uh, stepping over one of their, you know, the young lady who was in the back seat with her, she got thrown out at, during the rollover after her vehicle uh, got spun off the roadway. And she, Megan had to step over her body. You know, she had just been sitting in the back seat with a few minutes before. And uh, all these things, you know, the, the, the six emotions and the senses uh, are part of PTSD. And uh, so the defendants uh, moved to keep all that out under the impact rule uh, that, uh, you know, Georgia is one of the only few states now remaining that hasn't uh, declared it um, invalid and unconstitutional. But he declared, Judge Rose did, uh, he, uh, we we asked him to declare it, that it was unconstitutional, and he did a heck of a lot of research himself and found out that only a few days, about a week or so before our trial, the state of Kentucky, which was the only other state that still recognized it, had struck it down. So Georgia was the only state remaining, and he said, I'm declaring it unconstitutional. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we we haven't really touched on is uh, is this issue of, of of what Mr. Johnson, the driver of the truck, was doing and why he didn't notice uh, what was happening uh, ahead of him. And I and I and I know you all did a lot of discovery into his cell phones uh, or into his cell phone and what and what he had been doing in the days before. That's how you were able to prove that he wasn't. Um, uh, getting much sleep because he was texting the whole time when he should have been sleeping. Uh, but then I know there was this issue of uh, him. I'll, I'll just I'll just say what it what it was. It, it, and I don't think that the evidence really came out of trial. It might have gotten ruled out by Judge Rose, but w- that he was essentially sexting with a uh, with a young woman uh, while he was driving. And I think I also remember at some point that there was a wasn't there a significant amount of uh of pornography found in the truck itself uh, after the collision? Yes. Um, and we found, uh, we tracked down this woman in uh, Louisiana and uh, tried to get her under subpoena to uh, 
to give a deposition, but she did tell our investigator that uh, she had been showing herself, you know, live uh, doing some sexual things uh, to this guy uh, as he was driving along most of the night to help him stay awake. Oh, my God. But now now it seemed like that there did something must have happened during trial that it, 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 was it proven that he wasn't actually texting or wasn't actually sexting at the time of the collision? Because I saw at the in the opening statement, you made a, a, a statement about that. And in closing, it sounded like there may have something may have happened with that evidence. What, what, what happened there? Well, we tried to we got his cell phone you know, during discovery and we were going to have it downloaded. It was an Apple iPhone and he claimed that he could not remember the passcode to it, to get into it. And, you know, back then, and, um, unless Apple, you know, could get involved and open the, the thing, um, uh, which they fault anybody and in, including criminal, you know, prosecutors, they, they always opposed, you know, opening up cell phones, uh, for litigation purposes. And so we didn't have any way of getting into it. He says, you know, he couldn't remember the the passcode to get into it. And uh, so we never got to see what was on it. But uh, I did ask him, you know, uh, what what he was doing. And was he, because we had the data from his, uh, you know, we, we could see that he was using his phone um, along the way from Mississippi to Georgia. And, uh, but we just were never able to prove what he was doing. Uh, and he denied, he, he said, I can't remember what I was doing. So, you know, the judge, uh, would not allow us to ask him questions about sexting, um, because we could not link it up. Uh, and he said it'd be too prejudicial. Uh, so we, we tiptoed up to the line, but we didn't go there. Right, right. I I saw by the closing you you were able to mention that he was getting texts from a, a younger woman who I think he was fifty eight and she was twenty six, uh, and her and and then you just said you know I'm sure you can imagine you know what those texts might have been or something like that is what that's I saw right. at the closing. Yeah, that's right. So we just sometimes it's better to let the jury's imagination run wild. Yeah, than yeah. have the actual proof. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so um, so so, Bob, did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards and, and hear what their thoughts were of of, uh, of the trial? I did. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of times you get a verdict and uh, the jury was there. You know, we didn't start that trial until a Tuesday because Martin Luther King holiday was on Monday. And the judge told us he had a murder trial starting the next week. So we were going to have to, you know, get this trial in that week or he'd have to declare a mistrial. So we were really humping it. And I put up 18 or 19 witnesses, I think, in two days. And um, but the jury all hung around. They wanted to talk and they wanted to each one of them wanted to hug Megan and uh, let her know, you know, that they were there and that they they knew how painful and uh, this was to talk about uh, and live through that experience and see your friends die. And, but uh, yeah, the jury, they, they said uh, I had two or three of them come up to me, including the guy who was on the military base there and treated PTSD patients. He said, you know, I know exactly what y'all were talking about and your doctors and your experts. Um, and I've seen it, you know, these, these folks down the road, they do develop Alzheimer's and, uh, he said, I was one of the leading proponents for a big verdict in there. Um, and uh, so that really was helpful and comforting to me that jurors assign, um, given the right facts and the right expert testimony, they do assign significance to, uh, to that type of a traumatic brain injury that you really can't see and touch. Yeah. Uh, but that's why it's so important to show and tell, you know, with yes with us, you know, scans of the brain. And we had, you know, susceptibility weighted imaging uh, for the deposition of Dr. Forcine. And he pointed out where all these hemosiderin deposits were and how they affect the functionality of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, there's one one other thing I want you to talk about, Bob, and and then I think we can let you go. But you mentioned uh, in your opening, and then I, you said you were going to come back to it in your closing. But you had an, an acronym. Uh, you said they were going to do a sneak attack on Megan, and you called it SIPE, and it was uh, S I P E. I wonder if you uh, could share with our listeners uh, what what that is, and and uh, and I have what it is. If you if, if yeah. you need some help remembering. <laughs> Oh, I know what it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, SIPE, S-I-P-E. Um, this is their subtle innuendo defenses that they don't really come out and say, but you can tell after you watch the trial what they were up to. And uh, the first is suspicion. They want to create suspicion. Was she really injured as bad as they're letting on? Um, I is innuendo, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, did you see the pictures of uh, Megan at the beach, you know, smiling and having a good time? Um, she's uh, she's she's exaggerating. Um, P is prejudice. You know, don't make her a millionaire or a multimillionaire. And then E is envy. Um, you know, just play to the base uh, uh, human um uh darkest part of the, our hearts where we envy those that you know wind up with a lot of money right and so i always call that site yeah yeah i love uh, i love that and it's yeah, I- dismantling it's really dismantling to the defense you know there, there's no comeback for it yeah, no, I, I I like that a lot. And I thought I thought it was a great way to handle, you know, all the things that they're going to argue, because, you know, one of the things and, and I'm sure, you know, we didn't really point it out. But one of the things that's always easy for the defense to argue, especially in a brain injury case, is that the, the, is exactly what you said, is that they're faking or exaggerating because, you know, they see this as there as a, an opportunity that they can get a large payday is essentially what they're trying to suggest. Um you know, or, you know, call it the lottery or, you know, however you want to characterize it, that um, that they're they're trying to suggest that they that that, you know, you can't really see a brain injury. So they're not really injured as bad as you think. And uh, and this is just a um, a person who's taking uh, advantage of a, of an opportunity to, to make a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. You know, like when they don't have anything else to to talk about, they they appeal to those, you know, base moral or immoral uh attributes of a, a depraved heart and yeah. uh you know just try to prejudice the the jury at least one or two of the jurors against your client yeah yeah exactly well i just think between you calling that out and the letter from megan it was just such a powerful opening that it i didn't read the whole trial i read the beginning and the end but it that right. sure, sure seemed like a great way to start and a great way to finish and obviously a great result well thank you yeah i uh, i put a lot of thought in the how to put that case together I had to because the judge told us when i had four days so uh you know most of the time when you try a case like that it takes a week or more right so but we were putting them up and laying them down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, a, absolutely. That's just a fantastic work. Well, uh, I want to remind everybody, we've been talking about the case of Megan Richards versus total transportation of Mississippi uh, and U.S. Express uh, Inc., uh, as well as uh, John Wayne uh, Johnson. And uh, it was a $15 million verdict uh, that happened back in 2017 in Bryan County, Georgia. Uh, Bob, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about that trial that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Well, it was uh, it was aired live on Courtroom Visual Network, and also WSB TV out of Atlanta covered it live. And um, I uh, I think that you know if anybody wants to go watch it, it's a yeah. it's a um, it's a really good um, what uh, example I think of um, trying fast trials. I, I like to try fast cases. I don't like to drag them out. I'm trying to be respectful of the jury's time. I know they're not getting paid, most of them, uh, by their employers to sit there and hear my client's case. So I want to make the case um, as fast as possible. And I don't use you know any exhibits or any words to prolong a case unnecessarily. So um, I, uh, I make, well, I don't make, but I suggest to my 
younger lawyers in my firm to to watch it to uh, understand how to put a case together and get to the point and get it get it over with. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. I mean, that that is uh, a huge uh, point is to to move quickly, and I and I say that coming from my last trial that lasted three weeks because we we just could not get that case moving quickly uh, uh, through really. Uh, no fault of the people trying. It was uh, the way the court scheduling and and just the way things happen down in in that state that's south of us. Yeah, um, but, I, I, uh, tried case, <laughs> I tried a case down south too last May, and and they're different down there. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. I, that's uh, right. So I I feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, Bob, I, uh, I I really appreciate you coming on. We pre- we appreciate you coming on, and I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Bob Cheely of the Cheely Law Group, and you can go to CheelyLawGroup.com to look him up. That's C H E E L E Y, CheelyLawGroup.com. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's been a real pleasure, and um, uh, let's do it again. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time. And hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.